0: This is The Ark of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism listen as donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists and now here's your host donzel leggett Hello and welcome
1: to the ninth episode of The Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett. In this episode, I will continue to detail step 2 of the Arc process for personal transformation, which is educating yourself about anti-racism. I will further explain the difference between anti-racism and non-racism. And finally, I will provide several examples to compel you to reject non-racism and adopt anti-racism. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzel Leggett, host of the ARC of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world, and our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism. Now, this begins with your personal transformation to anti-racism. And back in episode three, I introduced the process for transforming yourself to be anti-racist and transforming your network by first erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. Then second, educating yourself about anti-racism. And third, building the character, confidence to stand up, speak out and take action to spread anti-racism. And over the last several episodes, we've been working our way through this process. In the last episode, I introduced step two, and that is the process of educating yourself about anti-racism. And in this episode, we will continue to focus on this. But before I go any further, I want to sincerely thank you all, all of our subscribers, all of our listeners for helping us hit a major milestone this past week when we hit our 1000th episode download. This is a very big milestone for us as we produce every single one of our podcasts ourselves. And quite honestly, just six months ago, I barely even knew what a podcast was. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and please keep listening. Also know that we listen to your feedback, so hit us up on social media. In fact, one piece of feedback I recently re- received was, Hey Donzel, I love your podcast, but can you make them a little bit shorter? They help me fit a little bit better into my workout routine. Someone else said something similar. Can you make it a little shorter? Because sometimes I'm running errands and I'm listening to your podcast, but it's a little long. So if you can make it shorter so I don't have to cut it off. So I'm acting on this feedback and this episode will be shorter. So again, keep the feedback coming. I love hearing from you and I will make the adjustments to make the arc of change one of the very best podcasts out there. Now, let's get into this important episode. As I explained in episode eight, anti-racism is not only about being conscious of overt racism and rejecting it, but also the harder to see covert racism, the structural and systemic racism that is built into our society. And remember, the crucial part is then deciding to speak out, stand up and take action to wake up people to the pervasiveness of racism and actively work to break down these structures and eradicate racism and reverse its destructive and devastating effects. Now, non-racism, on the other hand, is about denying or minimizing the existence and or significance of structural and systemic racism. And thus, it's about having a built-in excuse to not do anything to break the cycle. Non-racism is then actually not that much different from racism itself. In fact, in many cases, it's worse because it protects the systemic and structural as well as the indirect racism by hiding it behind the smiling face of the non-racist who says things like, I don't see color. We're all the same. I have plenty of black friends. Let me be clear. The biggest problem with racism and the biggest impediment to eradicating it is not the racist. It is the non-racist whose unwillingness to see the reality of structural and systemic racism and act to break it down in effect supports the endurance of racism itself. There is no middle ground. You are either on the side of racism or you're on the side of anti-racism. And non-racism is on the side of racism. Now the non-racists will deny this. Each of us know many non-racists who claim that they are all about diversity, inclusion, and equity. DEI. They will say that they believe in equality. They will proclaim that they are an ally. They will characterize racism as being. A small group of ignorant people that don't know any better, but that it's isolated. It's not structural, it's not built into our systems. That doesn't exist. The non-racist either knows they exist and pretends that they don't, or they simply would rather avoid this reality and ignore the facts that are right in front of them. Because acknowledging the reality will put them in the uncomfortable position of having to choose to do something or not. And this is uncomfortable to the non-racist. So they would rather pretend or ignore the facts that black and brown people make an average anywhere from 20 to 40% lower wages than white people make for comparable jobs. And that's even those who have college degrees and even advanced degrees. They would rather pretend or ignore the fact that on average, black and brown people have less than 15% of the wealth that white people have. That means for every $100,000 of wealth a white family has, the average black or brown family has only 15,000. They would rather pretend or ignore the fact that schools located in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods get in aggregate $23 billion with a B less funding than schools in white areas. While black and brown districts are suffering with this underfunding, white districts tend to have fewer students but again get rewarded with double the funding. White districts also enroll just over 1500 students on average. That's half the size of the national average while non-white districts serve over 10,000 students on average. That's three times the national average. This all equates to a better better education access for white students versus Brown and black students. And remember, based on those wage differences and wealth differences I talked about, the average white family can also afford tutors. They can afford to pay for test prep. And other stimulating activities to encourage their kids and help them learn better and be in better learning environments. And their kids don't have to work to help their parents make ends meet. These are all disparities based on race that the non-racist will rather pretend don't exist. They would rather pretend or ignore the fact that most black and brown people live in segregated cities and not by choice, but because of the conspiracy of the national, state, and municipal governments over many decades, working with local white civic organizations, white churches, white clubs, white neighborhood associations to redline them out of white neighborhoods. To create white suburbia and lock black and brown people into the worst living conditions with the poorest resources. They would rather pretend or ignore the fact that black and brown people are subjected to almost 70% more air pollutants than white people. Because of where they live due to that redlining. And by the way, white people disproportionately produce more air pollutants than the black and brown people who have been redlined into the inner cities. They would rather pretend or ignore that the fact that black and brown people have less access to quality health care and hospitals in their neighborhoods. But in those same neighborhoods, they have more liquor stores than are needed and that you see out in the suburbs. They want to ignore the fact that black and brown people are policed harder, rougher, and clearly more unfairly, resulting in five times higher incarceration rate. Five times. And 20% longer sentences for the same exact crimes. Blacks represent 12% of the U.S. population, but 33% of the people in prison. Latinx people represent 16% of the adult population, but 23% of the inmates. While whites account for 64% of the adult population, but only 30% of the prisoners. And studies have repeatedly proven that white people commit crimes at equal or greater frequency than black and brown people. Yet black and brown people together... Together, they're less than 30% of the adult population make up almost 60% of the prison population. Truly a disproportionate percentage. While white adults who make up 64% of the population only represent 30% of the prisoners? This is inverse proportionality at its most extreme. And with no logical explanation except systemic and structural racism. The non-racists would rather pretend or ignore the fact that all of this all of this does not exist. They want to pretend like it doesn't. And if it does exist, it's because black and brown people maybe maybe they're lazy or you know maybe maybe they're more likely to be criminals. You know what? Maybe they're violent. Or maybe they just they a lot of them are drug dealers. The anti-racist on the other hand knows that all of this is by design. It's the Pollyanna effect. Keep people poor by denying them wealth creation, good jobs, and fair wages. When they do get a job, make sure it's not a job in which they can advance. Police them at higher rates. Sentence them to longer jail time. Defund their education. Lock them into poor housing. That's next to pollution. Have more liquor stores in the neighborhood. Make guns more easy to to get access to. But make it harder for them to vote. And treat them less than human. And what happens? Over time society will accept this as the norm. They'll start to see them as less than. Both consciously. And subconsciously. I wonder how many of you knew any of those statistics I just went through. If you want to learn more, which I'm hoping you do because you're listening to this podcast and I'm hoping you're on the path to anti-racism, read Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law. We're going to talk more about that book over the next coming episodes. But the question now is, why didn't you know any of those facts if you didn't? Ask yourself why not the non racists typically will not investigate these kinds of facts. And if confronted with them, they'll try to explain them away and find alternatives to the truth because acceptance of the truth requires recognition that systemic and structural racism are real and will not go away without action. And this is uncomfortable to the non-racist. Challenge yourself. If you have any of these thoughts, welcome the feeling of being uncomfortable. The anti-racist is inspired by these facts to learn more, to go deeper and start activating to speak out to friends, to stand up to anyone who won't accept these and take action to start breaking down structural and systemic racism. The anti-racist knows that if you are not uncomfortable, You are not doing enough. Whether that's by pulling all your donations from candidates who do not support anti-racism or calling your government representatives, your, your governor, your United States rep, your state rep, your senators, and demanding change or going to your local police department or sheriff's office or community meetings. And start holding them accountable for fair treatment of people of color. Ask to see the records of stops. Write letters to the editor. And most importantly, the anti-racist is talking to their friends. They're talking to their family. And they're influencing them to transform to anti-racism. They're having the difficult conversations. Because anti-racism is about recognizing that structural and systemic racism exists in this country and continually educating yourself to grow and transform and most importantly, do something about it by standing up, speaking out, and taking action to practice and spread (laughs) anti-racism.
0: The ARC of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC and join our movement.
1: So as I said, the anti-racist understands and accepts that structural and systemic racism are real and that the only way to defeat racism is to destroy them by standing up, speaking out, and taking action. And this is not only about addressing all the disparities I spoke about before, but also one of the most visible and insidious, and that is police killing unarmed black and brown people. The non-racist does not recognize systemic and structural racism, or at the very least, they don't see it as significant. They continue to say that hey, everybody's equal, that everyone's treated the same, that everyone has the exact same opportunity. And they also say that police treat everyone equally, that black and brown people and white people are policed about the same, that we're all stopped by the police about the same. We're all arrested by the police about the same. And that the cases of police killing unarmed black and brown people is because they resisted in some way. Or they made the officers fear for their lives. Or that maybe they're just a few bad apple cops. That these are just isolated cases. Not ingrained across policing in this country. Not systemic. Not structural. But common sense tells us that the non-racist is wrong. That they are living in a self-created bubble. 200 years of experience tells us that the non-racist is wrong. Video clips that we see almost every day tell us that the non-racist is wrong. But the non-racist continues to look for other ways to explain this. So the anti-racist has to challenge their thinking, and not only with common sense, but with facts. So here's some facts that I found in less than five minutes of Google search. A study of nearly 100 million traffic stops across the United States showed that black drivers were about 20% more likely to be stopped than white drivers by the police relative to their share of residential population. So apples to apples, black drivers are going to be stopped 20% more than white drivers. This is over 100 million traffic stops. The study also found that once stopped, black drivers were searched twice as often as white drivers. Two times as often. While the study found, this is important, very important, while the study also found that they were less likely, black drivers were less likely to be carrying drugs, guns, or other illegal contraband compared to their white peers. How many of you knew that fact? The study also found the data showed that this difference went down slightly at nighttime by about 5 or 10%. Why? Because the police officers had a harder time distinguishing the race of the driver. But let's not forget, 20% more often, two times more likely to be searched. Sadly, this week, a young man named Dante Wright, 20 years old, with a one-year-old son, was one of those black drivers who was 20% more likely to be stopped by the police in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. He was one of those black drivers, two times more likely than white drivers to be searched. The reason he was stopped? He had expired tags on his car. During the pandemic, when the state of Minnesota's processing Of registration has been slowed down. And the police knew this. They could have easily. Let it go. But they didn't. And the reason he was searched. He had air fresheners hanging. From his mirror. Again he was one of the. Black drivers two times more likely to be searched. Searched for air fresheners. They could have easily let that go. But they didn't. He was then extracted from his vehicle after they found that he had a warrant for a minor infraction. Yeah, it's true. He tried to get away when the second officer approached while the first officer was handcuffing him. Who knows what this young man was thinking at the time? I can tell you this. We're in the middle of the third week of the trial of the murder of George Floyd. And we've all been Repeatedly seeing the video of an officer on George Floyd's neck and two other officers on the rest of his body holding him down. And it's been traumatizing. Who knew if Dante thought they're gonna put me on the ground and do me like they did George? So he tried to run. He tried to get away, he tried to get back in his car, see if he could drive off. He was shot dead. While struggling with police. He had no weapon. He never tried to assault the officers. Never said anything mean to the officers. He was just struggling to get away. The officer firing the fatal shot says she mistook her Glock for a taser. First off, why do you need to tase this unarmed 20-year-old who was not Threatening the officers. And how can a 26-year police veteran mistake a Glock for a taser? Dante Wright is dead because he was racially profiled. And more likely to be put in this situation unnecessarily by cops, just like the statistics I shared with you show. He's also dead because the police officer had little regard for his life. Little regard as if black lives don't matter. Would a white 20-year-old have been pulled over under these same circumstances for expired tags during a pandemic? I don't think so. Would they have pulled a white 20-year-old out of his vehicle for air fresheners and a minor warrant? I don't think so. Would they have been so quick to use a taser, a taser force on a 20-year-old white kid who's wrestling with police? I don't think so. And would the officer who killed Dante, would that officer have triple-checked to make sure she was holding a taser and not a Glock before taking the risk of killing a white kid Yes, I think she would have. As I mentioned, this week was the third week of the trial of the murderer of George Floyd. What's been obvious to most people is the highly professional, polished and overwhelming case against Derek Chauvin. The preparation and professionalism of the prosecuting attorneys. The credibility and believability of the experts. The willingness of fellow police officers to testify against One of their fellow cops, which never happens. And the courage of all the eyewitnesses to speak up, to go up and testify. What's also clear is the callousness of Chauvin and the arrogance of his defense. They put up almost no logical case. They called very few witnesses and the ones they did call were not credible, not believable and unprepared. Their strategy, if you can call it that, seems to be, hey, we don't have to do that good. All we have to do is present George Floyd as a big, scary, drugged-out black man. It's worked before, it'll work again. The non-racist looks at this and says that, you know, maybe there is some reasonable doubt. They did find that half, look looked like half-eaten pill in the back of the cop car, or, you know, maybe... It's just a case of of one bad apple. That's Chauvin. you know, He does look like a bad guy. He's only one guy though. That's not the rest of everyone else. That's not the rest of the police officers. The anti-racist on the other hand. Recognizes white supremacy playing out right in front of us. Like everyone else. They saw the inhumanity that Chauvin used to murder George Floyd over a torturous 9 minute 29 seconds. And they know that there's no way that that would happen if he was a white person. They also noted that there were four other officers generally on the scene that did nothing to save George Floyd. The anti-racist knows that the case has been proven on all counts beyond a reasonable doubt. But they also know that racism runs deep in this country. And they are as fearful as most black people that even a case is obvious and mismatched as this one, could go the other way. And they also know that it's only one case representing nationwide institutional racialized policing. That the killing of George Floyd is just a representation of the black and brown people who've been brutalized or killed by police before And sadly, after. Like Adam Toledo, the 13-year-old boy in Chicago who was shot dead by a police officer earlier this week after a foot chase in a predominantly black and brown neighborhood. The officer was responding to a call of shots fired and during the chase, he yelled for the boy to stop running several times on the video. The boy eventually stopped and turned with his hands up and the officer shot him dead. The still image captured the boy turning around with his hands empty, extended above his head in the universal symbol of I am giving up. Yet he was shot dead anyway. What this police officer had been as quick triggered if the suspect were white And if he was in a predominantly white neighborhood in the suburbs? I don't think so. And what about the black and Latinx army officer, 2nd Lieutenant Karan Nazario? A video was released of his abuse and disrespect by police during a December 2020 traffic stop. He was driving his new car with a paper license plate, like all of us who have a new car when that happens, whether it's new or used. When he saw the police lights, he knew as a black Latino, you got to be cautious with police at night in the dark when no one can see. So he put on his hazard lights and he drove a regular speed to a well lit gas station before stopping to make sure that there were a lot of people around and it was very visible. Again, this is something a non-racist would not understand. Certainly most white people in general would not understand this. But I can tell you that if I were in his shoes at the same time, the same place, I would have done the exact same thing. When the officers approached, he had his hands up on the dash where they could see him. He tried to explain to the officers why he drove to the gas station, but they wouldn't listen. He told them he was an officer in the army and he was serving his country. He even had his uniform on. Yet he was still verbally and physically abused, treated like a criminal, like a nobody. No humanity had mace sprayed in his face. And for what? Because he was driving a nice new car and he was black. They claimed they couldn't see the paper license plate. So they sprayed mace in his face. Would they have pulled over a white officer in a new car for this? Well, maybe it was dark. Maybe they couldn't see. When they did come up to the car and they saw it was a white officer, do you believe they would have treated the white officer like they treated Lieutenant Nuzario? There's no way. The non-racist would say, hey, this was just a couple bad apple cops. They fired him. That's good. The anti-racist knows that this is systemic racism that is ingrained in our policing and has been for 200 years. And that it must be called out and actions must be taken, starting with making no excuses. I can tell you firsthand that the statistics I've gone through, the video stories that you're seeing, most of which, most of these things that happen actually are not captured on video. The ones we see are the very few. But I can tell you they're the tip of the iceberg because I have experienced it. I have been racially profiled by the police. A friend and myself, Carlos is his name, a Latino. Of course, I'm African American. We're both 50 plus year old executives with Fortune 500 companies. And we were pulled over on a business trip in South Carolina because, get this, we were supposedly mistaken For carjackers. Carjackers. How many Fortune 500 executives do you think that are white that have been pulled over as suspected carjackers? How many white people in general have been pulled over as suspected carjackers or armed robbers or anything except speeding? Ask them. Ask them. Ask them. You've got family members. You've got friends. You may know an executive. You may not, but just generally ask them. I guarantee you they're, they you're going to run into a lot more black and brown people been pulled over, suspected for these things. I have the anti-racist recognizes that this is a reality in the United States. It's not just isolated incidents and it's not just in the South. Minnesota's in the North. The last time I checked. The anti racists will speak out. They will talk about the disparities that exist that are some of the, the ones I described earlier. Some of those statistics are the worst in the country here in Minnesota. The anti racists will challenge their white friends and family to recognize that systemic and structural racism exist, And they will continue to educate themselves and drive change in their communities. The non-racist looks at it and says. Well. Maybe this was just a mistake. That Donzel and Carlos were pulled over. Or an isolated incident. I know those guys. That, that, that couldn't happen to them. This must have been a mistake. It was isolated. Um, and these other incidences. Man they're sad. But uh, you know they, they resulted in unfortunate deaths. But I, I don't think police really treat people differently like that. These were just bad apples. The anti-racist knows with common sense that this is not true. That white people are treated differently most of the time. They're not stopped as much. They're not searched as much. Statistics tell us that. And we know by video evidence that they're treated differently. Like the 61-year-old white man in Hutchinson, Minnesota, this week, who refused to wear a COVID mask in a Menard store. Ironically, this is something that many white men notoriously refuse to do. They will not A lot of them, not all of them, will not wear masks in the middle of a pandemic. Putting store workers at risk. And when the store employee approached this man to ask him to comply, he threatened the employee. The police were called. Once the police arrived on the scene, do you think that this white man complied with the police? You think he cooperated? No. Do you think he resisted? Yes. Was he treated the same as George Floyd? As Dante Wright? As Adam Toledo? As Lieutenant Nazario? No. In fact, he assaulted the officer. When the officer approached his pickup, he tried to drive off with the officer's arm stuck in his window, in the car, in his driver's side window. Then he hit the officer in the head with a hammer. And this man was not shot, or harmed at all. The officer was assaulted. This man resisted. This man put the officer's life at risk in multiple ways. And he was not shot. He was not assaulted. He was not tased. Also this week, both of these are on video. A video surfaced of a white male motorist. I think this was in December. Who had been stopped by the police. He immediately started verbally resisting the police officer. Then he showed them that he had a loaded Beretta handgun in the car next to him. He continued to refuse to cooperate and resisted police. And then he verbally threatened to shoot both officers multiple times. Multiple times. Did the police officers treat him the same way that George Floyd was treated? That Dante Wright was treated? That Adam Toledo was treated? That Lieutenant Nazario was treated? No. The police response was to talk to him. To plead with him. To ask him, please, please stop. Please stop. This went on for a while till the guy sped off. They eventually caught him. But not one shot was fired. They never assaulted this guy in any way. These officers' lives were clearly threatened. These people clearly resisted. These people were threats, not only to the officers, but to society. Yet the officers hesitated and gave these white men the very opportunity that they did not give Dante Wright, the humanity they did not give George Floyd, the respect they did not give Lieutenant Nazario, the hesitation they did not give Adam Toledo. The anti-racist immediately sees this as what happens every day in America. Different policing for white people versus black and brown people. It's systemic and structural racism. Dante Wright was unarmed. George Floyd was unarmed. Adam Toledo stopped and turned with his hands empty and held high. Lieutenant Nosario was unarmed, and in uniform. And yet, they and many others were either brutalized, choked to death, shot to death, while these two violent white men who assaulted the officers, put the officers and others' lives at risk, were given the benefit of the doubt. What we saw on film In both that Hutchinson case and the Ohio case was an exact microcosm of the white supremacy that was embodied by the attempted insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. Hundreds of armed and threatening in a mob, mostly white people, dressed in combat gear with the intent to overthrow the government and potentially kill lawmakers. They brutally beat police officers. They sprayed police officers in the face with bear bear spray. They hammered police officers with Blue Lives Matter flags, no less. Poles. They killed one officer. Mentally traumatized two other officers who ended up committing suicide. They maimed several other officers. One lost an eye. And how many shots were fired by police? At this mob? These insurrectionists were trying to overthrow the government who killed police officers? How much deadly force was used by the police against them? How many insurgents did the police hold in chokeholds for 10 minutes? To my knowledge, there were just a few shots that were fired, resulting in one insurrectionist being killed. And it was to stop the insurrectionists from breaching an area in which the governor, uh, government officials were held. None of the insurgents were shot by police Defending themselves. The non racist still ignores this, tries to pretend like the insurrection was blown out of proportion, tries to put it way in the past. While the anti racist not only continues to talk about the seriousness of the insurrection and the continuing threat that white supremacy is to the country, but they also talk about the stark differences that they saw between police preparedness. In treatment of these insurrectionist terrorists compared to the way they treated Black Lives Matters protesters. The white supremacy was obvious. Even right now, thousands of troops have mobilized in Minneapolis and have been deployed in Brooklyn Center with riot gear, armed and aggressive, as if they're prepared for war. The people there are protesting the killing, the murder of Dante Wright. And they're being treated as if they're in a militarized zone and they are the enemy. Yet we all saw with our own eyes. And now we have the formal report that proves that the Capitol Police ignored reports of an impending and serious white supremacist terrorist threat on January 6th and they made no special preparations. And certainly did not call in the National Guard to bolster security. White supremacy has been noted by the FBI and national security experts as the biggest threat to American security over the last decade at least. This is not new information. And remember that the National Guard was called on black lives protesters over the summer and the former president deployed some unknown armed security force all over the country against Black Lives Matters protests. While the U.S. Capitol was left unprotected even after intelligence warned of an imminent attack. The non-racist wants to pretend that there is no correlation. The anti-racist clearly sees it. And speaks out about it. And stands up and takes action against it. They continually talk again to their friends. The tough conversation with their families and co-workers. Some continue to protest. Some write letters to their government officials. Some have pulled their political donations from candidates that won't stand out against against racism. The point is the anti-racists are doing something. They're taking action. The non-racist looks at all this and tries to justify their non-action by speaking to their black friends and acquaintances and trying to talk their way into having them agree that all this is blown out of proportion and that, you know, our society is okay. Or they want their black friends to educate them. Tell me what I'm missing. Help me feel it. What they don't understand is that many people of color are exhausted living in a world and a country with obvious structural and systemic racism that people who claim to be non-racist say they, they don't see. I'm not racist, but you don't see it. Then they're put in a position where they have to relive all this emotional trauma by trying to explain to the non-racist what is really going on, only to know that the person is probably not going to take action anyway. This is traumatizing. The anti-racist First uses common sense to recognize that structural and systemic racism is real. They don't need someone to tell them that. They challenge themselves to do the work, to learn. They don't put the burden on their black friends or their brown friends. They put the burden on themselves. This is one of the most important parts of transformation to anti-racism. It took me less than 10 minutes to gather the facts and stats I shared earlier regarding the devastating disparities that exist in the United States between white and black and brown people. There is infinite information available at our fingertips at any moment. It's not that hard to find the facts, but you have to open your heart to allow your mind to at least consider that you are keeping yourself comfortable by having walls of ignorance that are blocking you from seeing the obvious, then free your mind to learn. The biggest problem with racism is not the racist. It is the non-racist who believes they are being fair and equitable when in reality they are supporting the institution of racism there is no middle ground you are either speaking out standing up and taking action to break down systemic and structural racism or you are not reject non racism and adopt anti-racism
0: Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook.
1: To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist.
0: Thanks for listening and goodbye. The ARC of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about ARC, donate to our cause, and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.